0: Have you ever wondered how to convey your idea to someone so that you're really heard and understood? Conversations with questionable impact take place every millisecond in small business, and that's unnecessarily frustrating. Fortunately, my next guest, Elizabeth Dickinson, author of the Concise Coaching Handbook, has found some workable solutions that she shares during the interview. Pay attention to the tips on active listening. Changing the A in smart goals from attainable to attractive is powerful. I'm so glad you're here. Hi, this is Bill Rengel, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock their growth potential. Joining me today is Elizabeth Dickinson. Elizabeth is a life coach and professional speaker who has written the concise coaching handbook, How to Coach Yourself and Others to Get Business Results. She lives in St. Paul with her husband in a 1911 home with solar panels and is a competitive ballroom dancer. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you for having me, Bill. It's a pleasure. Say, when you were growing up, who's someone who influenced or inspired you?
1: Well, that would probably be my mother. My mother was someone who went through the Second World War, and she had won a full scholarship to Oxford, but wasn't able to take it because she needed to support her mother. And so later in life, when I was growing up, she actually went back to school. She got her bachelor's and master's while working full-time and also being involved in the community, and that I found very inspirational. She was just a very vital, engaged, and engaging kind of woman.
0: And what lesson did you take away from her example?
1: Well, I think I learned to be a very hard worker. I think that was one of the things. She just demonstrated that. I don't know that that was always a good thing. I think you can work very hard, and then I think you can work hard and you can work smart. And I think as I've gotten older, I tried to engage more in working smarter, like not that you're not working hard, but not working too hard in order to achieve what it is you want. And
0: what is it today that inspires or guides the direction of your work? You work as a coach and you specialize with professional women managers who are looking to make their best contributions. What is it that these people come to you for? And what are they saying that they have issues with when they ask to work with you?
1: I think that there's a big thing with to have it all. I think we've been taught that we can have it all. And I do believe that we can, but we can't necessarily have it all at the exact same time. Or in order to do that, we need to make adjustments. And often the adjustments are ones of self-care, I think there are a lot of women in the sandwich generation where they're also taking care of their kids at the same time as they're starting to step into taking more care of their own parents. And I find self-care is a big issue and actually being very clear about what they want and then really stopping apologizing for what it is that they want to make their lives work and just making sure that they make space for themselves. I think about a woman manager who is from a Fortune 200 company who's left to start her own consulting business. And she came to me and we were doing some values work. And one of the values that she came up with was freedom, that she wanted freedom. And we had to dig a little bit deeper because freedom means something different to a lot of people. Freedom to you or freedom to me is going to be different. And what we really found by digging a little bit deeper, that really her value was personal space in a very specific way. And that is that she's more of an introvert even though she had led a full team at this company that she'd worked with and been very successful at it, every day she needed significant amount of downtime. She'd found ways to do it in her job, but they weren't totally successful, that she could block out certain times where she just told her assistant, I'm not available, and she could sit there and just plan. You know, basically plan for the team, write, think about the week ahead, think about the plans that she was making with other people, all of those kinds of things. And coming out of that, she's found as she's developing her own consulting practice that that's even more important. And so she's just really carved out a couple of hours every morning where she sits, she writes, she meditates, she thinks before she starts her day. A lot of people would not consider that freedom, but for her, that is the ultimate freedom which is just to be able to kind of commune with herself and to take that time. It's just one of those things that's really important. Everybody has to figure the exact fix that is going to make their life work for them. Um, And that's what I try and help people do.
0: What I like so much about that, Elizabeth, is that surely if she had said freedom and someone had taken that at face value, they wouldn't have arrived at that particular practice and the importance of that for the person you're talking about.
1: Exactly, exactly. Because there are people that I've worked with before that have had the freedom, you know, have had freedom as a value, but for them, it's been more related to spontaneity. It's the idea of not sitting down, not planning everything out, but really being able to experience life in a kind of sparky way, which is like, oh, an opportunity comes in from left field and you've got the time and the space that you can act on it right away. I mean, that's what freedom is to certain other people. So I find it really interesting. We're all very individual that way. And I talk about creating recipes for success in your life, going through and looking at when you've succeeded in the past, what were the ingredients that were there that enabled you to be successful? How did you create those for yourself or were they just given to you? And how can we reproduce those in situations that you create going forward so that you can be and do your best? And that's really important. And I think that's part of, you know, what I also want to try and get across to managers because I also do work with helping managers incorporate coaching skills in the way they supervise and manage other people. And it's really important to give people the freedom, in a sense, to really isolate what it is about their jobs that helps them, helps them be successful and then give them the freedom to act on that.
0: Okay, so we have managers listening to this now in small businesses, and they're saying to themselves, Wow, that's a really good thing to do. How do I get started? What do I do? I'm assuming that there's probably a, a set of questions that you would encourage them to ask the people that report to them so to help them identify ways to bring out the best of their direct reports. Help, help us get started with that.
1: Yeah, well, I think about um, this guy called Ken who was the pilot plant manager at a company that dealt with food and food services. And one of the things that he was known for and was actually likely to get him fired was that he blew up when other people came in and made requests that he thought were unreasonable or undoable or hard. And, you know, the people would just be saying, can we have this done by such and such? And he would just kind of blow up at them. And so, what I had to do with him, and that I think other managers can do if they're in the same kind of situation, is say, is kind of go deeper and say, well, what is it about this situation that makes it so hard for you to keep your temper? Not in a judgmental way, but just in a way of trying to get some information. And what it turned out for Ken was that, He always felt that when somebody had more degrees than he had, because he had come through, he had literally risen through the ranks, starting out, having graduated from high school, and he never got a college degree. And he had some self-esteem issues around that. And so if these PhDs in food science came through and said, I need such and such by such and such, he would just, feel like his brain would freeze frankly and he wouldn't be able to come up with an answer and then he would feel frustrated he would blow up and say well that's just not possible but what i found out through asking him some questions about this and i said well is it really not possible he said no he said 10 or 15 minutes later i could think of ways to accommodate their request but i was so afraid i needed to give them an answer in that exact moment and so i just said to him the coaching question well is there What would be a way of handling that that would help you not to lose your temper? And we eventually arrived at the thing where he just said he gave himself time. He would say to them, instead of blowing up, he'd say, I don't have an answer for you right now, but if you give me a little bit of time, I can figure out how we can do that. And literally that eliminated the situation for him because everybody's fine. It's just like he felt like they needed an answer from him right away.
0: And it was never a situation where they were demanding an urgent response. It was something he had put on himself, wasn't it?
1: Exactly. And sometimes, I mean, it was urgent, but you can still, it can be urgent, but it isn't urgent like it has to be done literally in the next five minutes. It's Mm -hmm. usually urgent like it needs to be done in the next 12 hours maybe, but it's rarely that it's that urgent. I mean, unless sprinklers are going off in the building because it's gone fire, you know, I mean, that's urgent.
0: And that's another important word to make sure that people have a common definition for. Okay, Bob, what's urgent about that today and what needs to happen to avoid negative consequences? That's a, a really clear way of making sure that we're, they're on the same page.
1: Exactly. I'm just asking the simple question, what kind of time period are we talking about? Just a very general open-ended one because, oh, this is urgent and you might find, oh, it needs to be done in the next two weeks. That's a very different proposition than having it done by the end of the day. So it's making sure you know that you do have a shared definition. You're absolutely right about that.
0: Elizabeth, there are people listening to this interview right now. I want to make sure we do is convey the skill that helps people become better managers by adding these coaching skills in, something that you specialize in. And I remember from the book that active listening is something that you highlight as a crucial skill. If there are managers listening to this now in small businesses and saying to themselves, well, I think I'm a pretty good active listener, what guideposts or guidelines can you offer them to help them evaluate whether they truly are being good active listeners?
1: That's excellent. I do a whole separate presentation for companies on active listening because there's actually more to it than people think. Active listening is obviously being open to the other person and listening to what they say. But the active part of it often involves repeating back what the person has said to you. And this is what's important about active listening. It isn't active listening if the other person doesn't feel like they've been heard. And the only way you can really get that across to people is sometimes just by repeating back what they've said. So if somebody is telling you a problem, you know, about production or whatever is going on, you let them speak. And then you say, okay, hold on a moment. I want to make sure that I'm understanding what you're saying. And you literally repeat back what they said. And you start with, what I've heard you say is, X, Y, and Z, and the reason something isn't happening is because of A, B, and C. Is that correct? And what you will find, because I find this in coaching all the time, is that people will suddenly relax. You will sometimes see people's shoulders relax and come down. They will suddenly focus on you with more focus than they've had before, and they will go, yes, that's right. Or they'll say, yes, that's part of it, but also X, Y, and Z. Either way, you will have gotten their attention. Now, you can paraphrase what they've said, or you can use their exact words. It doesn't necessarily matter. I would urge you, at least initially, to use their exact words because that's the way they're going to feel the most listened to.
0: And that's a great idea to use those words and then practice with a skill because they'll eventually get to the point where they can paraphrase, right?
1: Well, yes. Paraphrase is sometimes important, but sometimes the paraphrasing is more so that you understand it because you're putting it into words that you understand. And if the goal is to have the person feel listened to and to feel like you're on the same team, that sometimes it's important, even if you don't totally understand how they're using the words, if you at least start out by repeating them exactly, there is that sense of giving them that they are equal with you. You're communicating to them that you're fully, fully present in the moment and that you have been listening very intently to what they've said. I recommend this in arguments even, because the number one reason that arguments escalate is because the other person or both people are not feeling listened to. And if you can step out of your ego for a moment and just say, hold on, I want to make sure I'm understanding you and you repeat back what they're saying, even if if it's about your own behavior. So if you say, okay, so what I have heard you say so far is that I did not honor the deadline that you were requesting of me and that you are feeling angry and upset about that. Now, the fact is, Repeating back to the other person their words does not mean you agree with their position. It really doesn't. But it is you stepping out and saying, okay, I'm going to be the calm person here and I'm going to help de escalate this situation. I've seen actually, I've been, I've gone on ride alongs with police officers and some of the most effective police officers walking into situations that, you know, that are getting out of control where there's an argument of some kind, they de escalate the situation by repeating back you know what the person thinks the problem is and that person will calm down but you can do that if you're having an argument with somebody it's just so important um it's like putting water on a fire if you can do that but it means again taking your ego out of it and just because you repeat back what the other person saying does not necessarily mean you agree with it but you're trying to help the other person feel heard
0: i think that what many people need to realize is that it requires a higher level of skill maturity and self-esteem to take that step and not look to advance your argument or be right, yet actually say, hold on, let me make sure you understand that I heard what you have to say. Otherwise, this discussion's going nowhere.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it becomes even more powerful if the other person has also been educated as to those skills, because then you can take time to mirror back and forth to each other. And that will bring the entire relationship to a whole nother level.
0: I see that as a great outcome. However, I don't want people to think that someone has to use those skills in order for something to be resolved or to wait until everyone's trained before you start using the skill. Would you endorse that?
1: Absolutely. You can do that as a one-sided thing. And that's why I think it really helps for managers and anyone who's in charge of other people to have it because The person doesn't necessarily know that you're using a skill that you've been taught. All they know is that they are being heard and that engenders trust. And if you think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, a sense of safety, which is right above food, shelter, clothing, having your basic needs, that sense of safety, which I say in these times, for most people is going to be a sense of emotional safety, not necessarily physical safety. So to create psychological safety, you need to have some kind of trust. And if you cultivate active listening skills, you're cultivating a sense of trust, and then you can get to the next step of the Maslow thing, which is a sense of belonging, which is what everybody wants. If you've got a small company, you want the people who work for you to feel invested in the mission of the company and the sense that they belong to it and that they're a contributor. And they need to have that sense of safety first. Sometimes I've dealt with people who've left jobs, and often a reason they leave the job is because of bad management and because there wasn't this sense of safety in the job, that there wasn't a sense of integrity, that the company was saying one thing.
0: Can you tell me about a specific example of someone you work with who might have been on the verge of leaving a company? And what was the issue? What was the real conflict that that person was feeling about not being managed well? What's the name of the person, the title, and the organization? Introduce it as an example.
1: Okay, well, there's a person I'll call Jane, for the purposes of this, who came from an IT management company that was based both here and internationally. And she eventually left the company because she was badly managed, for one thing, but she also felt that the company mission, what they said the mission was, And the way they wanted to treat their people was not actually matching up with the way the people were actually treated. She felt that.
0: Okay, and just for clarification, when she said she was badly managed, what were the specific issues in her complaint, the behavioral observations that could be made?
1: What she felt was that the company would say things like, oh, we're never going to downsize this branch of the company. And then a few months later they would downsize and she would see people leave. So there was just this sense of psychological cat and mouse. They'd be saying one thing that we're not gonna downsize this part of the company and then people would start losing their jobs. So there was definitely a sense of lack of integrity there. She also felt that she was being asked to do things that were unreasonable, things that were actually not doable by people who did not really understand the job. The fact that the managers did not really understand the specifics of the job that she was doing and they didn't care to find out. It was like they wanted a result, but they didn't really understand the process. They weren't interested in learning the process. And this created an awful lot of stress because there were expectations put on Jane that she felt that she couldn't achieve. And so she eventually left the company. She ended up being a freelancer in the IT field that she was in. So I think it's a great frustration for people.
0: I think that this also illustrates one of the terms that you introduce in your book on about tolerations, where she wasn't willing to tolerate that stress and put up with it, so she had to make a decision. Can you explain that in the context of this example, how tolerations create undue stress if they're not attended to?
1: Yeah, I would say a toleration is anything that you are tolerating, accepting in your life that actually takes a little bit of energy. It could take a little bit of energy or it takes a lot, but generally stress builds up over things that you're tolerating that you're not able to address. So for instance, for her, even though she had spoken up a number of times, things were not changing. And she was tolerating staying in the job because she felt she needed the paycheck. And so she needed to be coached to see that she could create something outside of this job. If she had done everything that she could to try and make the job better and the powers that be weren't listening, then she had a choice. She could stay in the job and be unhappy with it and feel that her energy, her engagement in the company was being eroded and that it was starting to affect other areas of her life. It was starting to affect, negatively affect her relationship with her husband. It was affecting her enjoyment of things that she did to de-stress herself, all of her hobbies. All of those things were being affected. So she needed to see that she could create something better for herself. If she'd done everything she could, wasn't changing, then she could either stay and be unhappy or she could leave and create something better for herself. And that's what she did.
0: I want to highlight that for all the small business leaders listening, that if you feel like there's stress over you putting in the effort and giving your best effort and things still aren't changing, then that's a toleration. That's a clear signal that energy is being consumed by that activity and it's not leading to the result you desire. And you do have choices. You can't stay stuck in that because the stress can hurt your health, as well as your relationships, as well as your enjoyment. So thanks for that reminder, Elizabeth.
1: Yes, absolutely. Tolerating other people's behavior when it clearly negatively affects you, that's, that's a toleration you don't want in your life. That's for sure.
0: Agreed. Are you ready for the My quest for the best lightning round? Sure. So what are two or three of the key components of your routine for daily success?
1: Well, number one, I get up and I do some simple stretches. I trained as a yoga teacher decades ago and they aren't necessarily yoga stretches but I do probably 20 minutes of stretches a day and I usually take just a few minutes to meditate to calm my mind before I start the day. It's not absolutely every day because sometimes I have very early starts where I can't do that but almost every day I do that.
0: And what would you say is your favorite way to get unstuck?
1: My favorite way to get unstuck is generally to ask myself what's the most important thing I could do right now? And then I do it. (laughs) What's the most important thing I could do right now? And then I then just do it. Do you have a tool or system you use
0: for staying on track and productive?
1: Yes. I have a grid that I use almost every day and it has the date, the time, it has what I did, and then it has the next steps. And partly because I am a solopreneur, you know, I'm the only person in my business. It really helps, especially when I don't have a coach. I usually have a coach myself for at least part of the year, but then I kind of get myself where I want to be. And um, the coach usually, if you have a coach, they keep you on track. And I find by tracking my activities, what did I actually accomplish today? I have Achiever, if anybody's done StrengthsFinder. Achiever is one of my top strengths. And achievers need to make progress every day or to see that they're making progress. And I have a thing of sometimes other people do too. They kind of lie to themselves. They say, oh, I didn't get anything accomplished today. Well, the fact is you did get something accomplished today. You just need to track it so that you can quiet that part of your mind that thinks you're not making enough progress. And I know by tracking it, that just quiets that part of my mind. Oh, okay. I spent 15 minutes on this. I spent half an hour on this. I spent two hours on this. All of that is really helpful in keeping me on track.
0: Elizabeth, what's the most important habit, routine, or belief that you've stopped in the last year that's brought you the most pleasure or personal satisfaction?
1: I think it's that I am enough. I think just kind of that sense of I am enough the way I am, that's given me some power to let go of, am I doing enough? Have I achieved enough? It's sort of, I am enough, I think, is probably just a kind of mantra. What I'm doing is enough. You know, and just the sense of following the things that bring me either the most pleasure or bring me the most payback. Those are the other two things. Letting go of things that I'm coming off some boards this year that I've been on for literally over a decade just to kind of free up space in my life, even though some of them didn't take a lot of time, just letting go of some of those things and saying, hey, it was a great run. I probably stayed a little longer than I needed to, and it's time to let it go. And that's fine.
0: So one of the other things that you describe in the book that's been talked about a lot are SMART goals. And SMART goals have been around forever. What I want to ask you is in your work with professional managers who are looking to help make the workplace an optimal place for making their best contributions as well as for those of their direct reports? What have you found that helps people go beyond smart goals that makes them more effective, that makes them more inspiring, that makes them more energizing? Because sometimes people use the realistic and timely to really fall into tasks rather than goals, which has always been one of my criticisms of that framework. What have you found that works well
1: Well, you know, I'm so glad you brought that up because I think you're absolutely right because you can use SMART and for people listening, SMART stands for specific, measurable, attainable and attractive, realistic or results focused and time bound. But the one that I think doesn't give, I think it's the A, you know, a lot of people say attainable for SMART. I think it needs to be attractive. So everyone can create a SMART goal. They can say, oh, it's specific. I'm going to get it done by such and such. And here's how I'm going to measure it and all of that kind of thing. But it really does need to be attractive. And that means it has to be appealing and beneficial to you because it's not very motivational if a goal is a should that you or someone else imposes on you. So it really has to be something that fills you with a little bit of excitement that you go, yeah, if I get that done, I'm going to feel good. And I think that's the piece that I think is going to be the most challenging if you're a manager, because you can hit everything on the smart thing, but is it going to be attractive to the person that you're managing? And if it isn't, you need to ask, what would make this attractive to you, getting this done? Okay, we know what you need to do. We know how we're going to measure it. We know when it needs to be done by, but what would make this attractive and appealing to you?
0: Sometimes it's just those little shifts that make such a big difference in getting people's engagement higher and making them more excited about their goals. I know that we also spoke about, it was offline, I think in your book as well, that when employees are happier, they're 12% more productive and engaged. And what a difference
1: that makes. Absolutely. I think we talked about the Gallup organization, which measures employee engagement, and they come out with a report every 10 years. And engagement is essentially defined, employee engagement, as the willingness to go above and beyond the job description, essentially. And positive employee engagement is linked to higher productivity higher profitability, less shrinkage or theft, less safety accidents, all of these amazing things. And the University of Warwick study has shown that, as you said, that employees who are happier are 12% more productive. And if you think about the gross national product, if it goes up a couple of percents every year, we get excited. But if you think about in terms of a company, what 12% more productivity means, that's going to be huge. And so you want your employees to be happy and to be engaged and to be more productive. And so much of that comes down to the way they're managed because, you know, the Gallup organization has shown people don't leave companies, they leave bad managers. And so any way that you can come up with a more humane way of managing people, which I would argue is easily achievable by incorporating some coaching skills, the better your company, the healthier your company is going to be.
0: Elizabeth, you and I both know that it's important to lift others up, that you want to bring people into organizations who have more skills and more talents than the people who are there already so that everyone and everything expands. What's been your observation about what gets in the way of managers welcoming people in who have new talents and more skills than the current crew?
1: Wow, that's a big question. I would say allowing capacity to grow. I think if you're a leader, you have to accept that you're not going to be equally good at all of the things that need to be done in your company and that there's certain things that, especially if you're a small business owner, you need to outsource and you need to accept that there are going to be people in your company that are going to be better than you at doing certain things. And you need to welcome that and not be intimidated by that. I mean, I would say that that would be a first step. And then you need to encourage them to use those skills. You know, you need to build a sense of trust. I'm not saying put your trust in somebody who's not trustworthy, but as people demonstrate competence and ability to do things, it's about constantly checking in with them to make sure that they're finding appropriate ways to do that. You know, what would make them happier? Where did they see opportunities for growth? You know, what are new things that they want to try?
0: Elizabeth, can you recall an example of working with a company where they actually got this right and they started to implement some of these steps?
1: I helped start the PRISM Award, which is the International Coaching Federation um, has a PRISM Award and I started the one in Minnesota. There's an international one and a national one and that kind of thing. And it was to recognize uh, coaching excellence in organizations. And I think Bar Engineering, which is a smaller company, maybe a couple hundred people in Minnesota has, was one of the first winners who did that. And what they found because they're working with architects, you know, and they're doing engineering projects and people are working a lot on their own. They found that typical supervision didn't necessarily work for them. And so what they did was they had at least basic coaching skills taught to every member of the company. You know, They had a sort of big conference where all of those coaching skills were taught. And they basically assigned an in-house coach to everyone. So you had mentor coaches and it's worked really, really well for them. I mean, they're one of the most successful small companies in Minnesota. I think the rates they charge are higher and they're able to get those rates because customers know they're going to be very well taken care of. And some of that comes back, I think, to the coaching skills that they use not only between themselves and the company, but they use when they're dealing with their clients. So I think that that would be an example. Another example I can think of is a small nonprofit. I think there were only five or six people in it. And they were dealing with basically women who were escaping bad situations, that they were pregnant, maybe in domestic violence situations, who were trying to start new lives. And they had a couple of sort of counselors, coaches, they had some managers, they had somebody at the front desk, and they all learned coaching skills. And they found that everyone was happier, there was less turnover, and that they were more successful in the way they were dealing with these women, that these women were more easily able to find and hold jobs and to make better decisions for themselves and their family. That would be sort of two different sides of the spectrum, one nonprofit, one for-profit, that really took on learning coaching skills and that it really made a difference in the business.
0: Elizabeth, I want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best today. You brought out some great points, such as reminding people who are in leadership positions, as well as aspiring to just lead their lives better, that if they want to have it all, it's possible, just not all at the same time. And helping us understand and remember about active listening, one of the crucial criteria of active listening is that if the other person doesn't feel heard, it's not active listening. And to start out, it's often crucial to remember to use word for word, repeating back what they've said so that the primary goal of making them feel understood is reached. And then the secondary goal of making sure that you understand what they actually mean can be pursued following that. And how that's a great way for de-escalating arguments at work or outside of work. We talked about tolerations And we talked about that one distinction, that one language distinction with smart goals that I really, really love, rather than making them attainable, make them attractive, and that adds that extra little zest to it. For all of these reasons and more, I thank you so much, Elizabeth, for joining me on my quest for the best. Tell me, where can people go to find out more about you and your work?
1: Well, my website, pursueyourpath.com um, would be one place. They can also connect with me on Facebook at Pursue Your Path, and I'm also on LinkedIn, so it's pretty easy to find me at any one of those places.
0: Elizabeth Dickinson, author of the Concise Coaching Handbook, How to Coach Yourself and Others to Get Business Results. Thank you again for joining me on my quest for the best.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Bill.
0: Hi, this is Bill. Before you go, I just want to ask you a quick favor. If you've enjoyed this interview on My Quest for the Best, I'd love it if you'd go to iTunes, look up My Quest for the Best, and subscribe. I want to make sure you don't miss the very next episode we have coming up. We've got a lineup of terrific guests, and I know that if you enjoyed this one, you'll like what you find coming up soon. Also, feel free to give it a comment, a like, because we work hard to put these interviews together, and I'd appreciate making sure that we're reaching you and serving you in the the best way possible. I look forward to reading your comments, and catch you on the next interview. Thanks so much.